This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown episode 1.30, The Assassination of McVeigh by the Esper Amuro Ray. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and wondering if this episode might have inspired Trigun a little. (laughs) And I'm Nina, anime fan and almost frighteningly strong. (laughs) We are joined today by a special guest. Hi everyone, my name is Sean Michael Chin. I'm a uh, fight director, fight choreographer, and stunt performer. Sean is the second Sean to appear on Mobile Suit Breakdown. For the record, I am uh, the better Sean. Fight me, Richards. Sean has actually consulted for the program before. I consulted his expertise back when we covered Amuro's final duel with Rambaral's goof, behanding him. Yeah, well, it was more at the elbows. <laughs> yeah, but the elbowing doesn't sound as <laughs> good. It's some Obi-Wan Kenobi stuff right there. Just whoosh, right in the cantina. <laughs> Listen, just because they're beam sabers doesn't mean it's all inspired by Star Wars. You know where I'm coming from with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to my home ground, okay? <laughs> Well, welcome. And Thank you. We appreciate all of your Star Wars uh, references. Please don't sue us, Disney. <laughs> it's love. It's love. Mobile Breakdown is made possible by the support of 66 patrons, including our newest patron, Megan D. Thank you to Megan and to all of our patrons. If you would like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our bonus content, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. Mostly Breakdown would like to extend our thanks to at Doom to Flesh on Twitter and on Instagram at TFigures at the Red Comet 16229 and at Tokyo Marcus. Thank you also to Leo L, who reviewed us on Facebook, and to Renata Ramonda, who has been helping us better understand the rich and fascinating history of early mecha animation in Italy. Stay tuned for more information about that very soon. Last week, the White Base joined the Federation's all-out assault on the asteroid fortress Solomon. After fierce fighting and the use of terrifying new weapons by both sides, including the heroic and crucial role played by the Federation's new Ball Mobile Suit Corps, the Federation was able to win the day. But the White Base was left mourning another of their own. Lieutenant Slager was killed during the final confrontation with Vice Admiral Dozel Zabi's Big Zam mobile armor. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam episode 37, Duel in Texas, or Texasu no Kobo, Texan Attack and Defense. First, the recap. Having defeated the forces at Space Fortress Solomon, the White Base is sent on a mopping-up mission, tracking down any Xeon forces that escaped. Fra continues to assist in the infirmary, and while she runs some tests on Amuro, they talk for the first time in a long while. Amuro asks her how long it's been since they stopped talking. Fra, not looking at him, says that they've both been preoccupied with their work. 
Noting that all his medical tests are normal, Fra tells Amaro that he's become strong, almost frighteningly so. You're far beyond my reach now, she says sadly, before putting on a happy smile and saying that she prefers him strong and brave, that they were all bound to grow up someday. Amaro apologizes, but Fra insists there's nothing to be sorry for. Before he leaves the infirmary, Fra asks Amaro if something happened to him on side 6. He seems different. Amaro starts to tell her that nothing happened but stops himself, instead telling Fra that when he figures out how to talk about it, he will tell her. The white base reaches the edge of the Texas zone, a field of space debris around the Texas colony, originally built for leisure and for raising livestock, mostly abandoned since the war began. They spot a chevet and suspect there are more Xeon forces hiding in the debris. The chevet is not a ship that escaped Solomon, but is McVeigh, caught up to the Trojan horse at last. Launching his rickdoms and joining the battle himself in a custom-made Gyan mobile suit, McVeigh is determined to prove himself to Kaecilia and show up Char. The Chevet is to keep the white base occupied while McVeigh sets a trap for the Gundam. The rickdoms lure the Gundam to McVeigh and his Gyan. Guns hidden in an asteroid fire on the Gundam and McVeigh celebrates, thinking he has finally destroyed it. But his celebrations were premature and he soon retreats to inside the Texas colony. The Gundam follows, its shadow streaming down the dark halls. Shars Zanzibar docks at the Texas colony. Lala's Elmeth is still not ready, they only have Shars Gelgug. The Texas colony is sunk in perpetual twilight, its mirrors damaged by the war, the land reduced to desert. Lala can feel something coming, but isn't sure what. Flanagan, the researcher who has been studying and working with Lala, checks his instruments, but he has never seen Lala's brainwaves resonate like this before. Char sets off in his Gelgug to keep an eye on McVeigh, while Lala, in her own vehicle, finds a spot from which to observe the battle. The Chevet, two Musai, and the remaining Rickdoms keep the White Base and the rest of the Federation forces occupied, leaving Amuro to duel with McVeigh. As Amuro enters through an interior airlock, he is stunned and the Gundam thrown to the ground by an explosion, triggered by the opening door. McVeigh has left traps behind him. Dodging the Gyan's projectiles, Amuro soon finds himself in a field of tiny mines. None seem to damage the Gundam, but Amuro is knocked in every which direction. As Amuro and McVeigh approach each other, Char appears and begins to attack the Gundam himself. The Gyan jostles Char's Gelgug, and McVeigh tells Char to pull back. They argue, but Char finally agrees to leave McVeigh to it, secretly hoping that the Gundam will destroy McVeigh for him. The Gyan suddenly charges the Gundam. McVeigh has been keeping track, and knows that by now the Gundam will have exhausted the beam rifle's ammunition. They duel back and forth with their beam swords, McVeigh wondering how it's possible for the Gundam to anticipate all of his attacks. Perhaps the pilot is one of those new types. The Gundam finally tackles the Gyan, slicing through its back with the beam sabers. In that moment, Amuro hears Lala in his mind, telling him that he can stop now, that the battle is over. The Gyan explodes. Shar rushes to where Lala is waiting, to shield her from the blast with his Gelgug. Amuro and Lala can still feel each other, even see each other's faces in their minds, and the episode ends with each feeling the other's name. Amuro. Ra-ra. So they're in the background for pretty much this entire episode, but I do think we should talk a little bit about the status of the White Base. Mm -hmm. This is a post-Solomon world for the White Base. A lot has changed. 
And it didn't necessarily change just during the battle. It's been changing for a little while. But now that the Battle of Solomon is over and we go into sort of a, a holding pattern momentarily, we do get a chance to catch up with people and see what the status of a lot of these relationships has become. We get a brief moment with Bright and Mirai on the bridge. Mirai seems to be doing better. She's Still moving grieving. on. She's grieving. Exactly. Um, and and you know, Bright says something very similar to what he said in the previous uh, pair of episodes to her, which is, I'm here if you want to talk. I'm right? here for you. And Mirai is throwing herself into her work, uh, which seems to be what everyone is up to. I mean, Bright is sleeping on the bridge. <laughs> Oscar and Marker are taking it in turns uh, to work their station. Sunmalo is clearly, you know, up to his elbows and injured people. <laughs> yeah, well, Sunmalo, who is the, the ship's doctor, sort of. And he's handling all of the, the sick and the wounded, of, of which there are quite a few. With some help from Fra. And he makes a comment, which is a nice callback to earlier when someone said that Oscar and Marker were the hardest working members of the crew. <laughs> they absolutely are. Uh, and Sunmalo now makes a comment to the same effect about how he's really impressed by the stamina of Oscar and Marker and that Amuro guy too. <laughs> this whole scene is with him. He's washing his hands. He's looking at a mirror. And then at the end of it, he sort of goes, ah, like he's checking his own tonsils. <laughs> it's less than a second, right? But you sort of get from it this impression of someone who is probably working himself sick, right? He's not sleeping enough. He's not eating enough. He's working too hard. And he's definitely feeling like he's coming down with something. And also, it's his job to keep an eye on everyone, himself included. Mm -hmm. Physician, uh, heal thyself. And there's no one There's no one else to look after him. I mean, Fra could check his blood pressure if he gave her explicit instructions to do so. <laughs> Fra is still helping out. We saw her go to help during the battle because of the number of wounded. And now she's still there. And we have a very poignant and uncomfortable conversation <laughs> between her and Amuro. Yeah, I mean, barely a conversation. Much is said in few words. Amuro, perhaps thinking of his earlier conversations with Sela, asks Fra, how long has it been since we stopped talking? And, you know, all Fra can say is, well, we've both been preoccupied. We've both been busy. Uh, in a moment that felt to me like it was hearkening back to our various comparisons between Fra and Amuro's mother and Fra as a mother figure. She talks about Amuro being so strong that he has kind of grown past her, mm -hmm. but that she doesn't resent this, or at least she says she doesn't resent it, right? She says, you know, I wouldn't want to see you be weak. We all have to grow up sometime, which felt very parental to me. This idea <laughs> of like, you have superseded me, but I don't need to keep you. I don't need to keep you down. I want to see you grow up. It pains me that we are growing more distant, but that this is a natural part of your becoming an adult. Okay. So you saw you saw the connection to the mother there. I saw a connection to her conversation with Hayato during the Solomon episodes. Because in, in that conversation, what Hayato says is, I've been trying to beat Amuro this whole time. I've wanted nothing else since I joined the white base than to beat Amuro. And I can't. I'm not ever going to be able to. I can't even keep up with Kai and Sela. Amuro is impossible. And what Frau says in that scene is, Amuro's just different. And I think what she meant there is what she says now. Amuro's beyond our reach. He's beyond your reach. You can't beat him. He's beyond my reach. I can't. Connect. Yeah. We also get, for once, some honesty from Amuro <laughs> about his emotions. <laughs> uh, when she tells him, you've seemed different since side six, did something happen? And at first he's like, oh, I seem different because he hadn't realized that that would be noticeable to anyone else. And rather than try to pretend like nothing happened, he admits a lot happened. I'll talk to you about it when I have the words to talk about it, when I know how to talk about it, because he has no clue. Yeah. It's a big admission to say, 
I, yeah, I don't know how to talk about this thing that happened. It's pretty insightful for anyone, much less a teenager. Especially somebody as messed up as Amaro is. Well, and as as uh, our consultant Shar <laughs> pointed out a couple of weeks ago, a big part of the difficulty working with teens is they do not have the words to talk about their emotions. They just do not have the vocabulary to verbally process what it is they're feeling. Yeah, once again, Shar manages to very accurately predict exactly what's going to happen in the show. Well, but uh, but I don't know that she would have predicted Amaro's self-awareness about <laughs> this, right? That he that he realizes, oh, I'm having some deep feelings. I don't know how to talk about them. Sort of like a, a running tally of Shar's score. Just like it's going to be like a, just a ding every time where she predicts something. Oh, that's a good that's a good idea. <laughs> she would appreciate that. Oh, you just you just got to have it be um, Charmander's cry. <laughs> oh, probably copyrighted. Well, have her record it, Charmander. <laughs> So, Sean, as someone who hasn't been watching the show, but has oh, been just hearing out us, me like that, why don't you? Well, you haven't, right? No, this I have. I've been listening to the podcast. You've been listening to the though. podcast. Uh, did you have any particular feelings about that scene or the interaction between Fra and Amaro? It did remind me of a, a kind of archetypical scene uh, in a lot of these, uh, you know, I guess shonen classified uh, stories where the the realization of your protagonist as not just exceptional, but uh, special or unique. Um, you know, things in, in like the Dragon Ball franchise, like really when it gets to Dragon Ball Z, and if, once they introduce, you know, transformations, it takes one character and puts them in a completely different category. Mm-hmm. It's this this form of um, acknowledging that the familiar has become unfamiliar, something that you have identified with or something or someone that you have identified as part of your in-group or someone that you at least you can understand has suddenly had this layer of otherness attached to them. I was actually very surprised at how kind uh, and how um, accepting Fra was when making uh, that kind of tacit implication. It's been a journey for Fra too. Mm. Um, there were a lot of episodes early on where as Amuro was starting to take that journey, where Fra was very resentful, very resentful of being left behind, very resentful that Amuro's world was expanding to include people that weren't her and that the part of his life that she occupied was contracting. There's that scene where he comes back from uh, talking to Lieutenant Matilda and Fra's waiting for him. It's the scene where she's wearing the amazing coat, which unfortunately <laughs> has not shown up again. Uh, they bring the vase back, but they don't bring the coat back. I can't accept it. Well, and it feels very much like girlfriend waiting up for boyfriend yeah. to arrive. Well, and what she says is like, where have you been? Right. <laughs> but like, where has Amaro been? Where is he going? Because in a, in a physical sense, he's still there. But in a you know, sort of metaphysical sense, in a spiritual sense, in a hero's journey sort of sense, he's gone beyond where everyone else is. Well, the hero's journey is all about change. It's not about action. It's about the development of a single person. Mm-hmm. And into a, a different, fundamentally different kind of thing. Her ability to detach herself from Amaro, to essentially say to herself like, well, we'll be close or we won't, but my constant caretaking and my constant impositions on him are not like necessary. I don't, pushing myself at him and trying to have this close relationship is not working. I feel like her ability to process that, her ability to be okay with them growing distant has been entirely a product of her having having more to do <laughs> and her having tasks of her own that give her meaning and fulfillment mm-hmm. beyond just taking care of other people. 
Yeah. You know, she works the comm station on the bridge. She helps in the med bay. She's still looking after Kika, Cats, and Let's a lot of the time, but that's not all she does. She's not just looking after other people. She is also part of the crew proper. Let's do a quick roundup on the other members of the white base and what's up with them. Sayla and Kai are killing it. And by it, I mean Xeon soldiers. <laughs> so many. Yeah. So Sayla, many. Sayla gets, what, four or five kills alone in this episode? Kai, Kai has that one. wonderful, oh, I think he gets more than one, but he has that particularly great one where he's grappling with a dom and he drops down the shoulder cannons and shoots it in the face. Yeah. Clever Kai. And then jets away. Uh, the gun cannon does not usually excel in melee combat. And Hayato remains in the med bay. He wants to go back to battle, but is uh, refused by Sanmalo, proving once and for all that Hayato is the Hayato of being a good patient. But in this case, that means he's actually listening to orders because almost everyone else on the crew would probably have waited for Sunmalo to leave and ignored him <laughs> and gone to fight. No, yeah. for real. Like, no, no, you're right. I mean, literally that thing happened in the episode where Ryu died. Right. And Amaro would probably do that. Sela would definitely ignore Sunmalo. Yep. I don't know about Kai. <laughs> Kai might enjoy the chance of a rest. <laughs> Speaking of Sela, actually, you know what this episode reminded me of? What? Amaro's just, he's too strong. Hmm. All right, I think that's the white face taken care of. Well, and we did get a brief, perhaps the the most cheesecakey moment that we've had of Sayla getting out of her bath, yeah. and it wasn't even that extreme. <laughs> yeah, it just um, it felt gratuitous. It and can... the, it, it's true. None of the other scenes so far that have featured nudity or like partial implied nudity have felt gratuitous in that way. It certainly felt superfluous. Yeah. Yeah. Once Sailor was getting out of the bath, I was like, okay, we're doing this. But then there was that extended shot from uh, like a shampoo commercial. With her hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we know from previous scenes, the show is not exactly shy about showing like naked breasts mm -hmm. it's come up a couple of times before but always in scenes where it's not sexual mm, yeah this was a lewd scene even though they didn't show us any naughty bits i will say we noticed as we were watching this that we've, we've commented on it in previous episodes but there is a particularly distinct dark cross-hatched shading that shows up in this episode and occasionally in other episodes in a way that is very inconsistent and makes me suspect that perhaps there was one animator who really liked this style and whenever he worked on an episode he put this style into it which gives the overall impression of showing off and so maybe the sexy sailor scene and the luscious hair of the shampoo commercial bit maybe that's all there because they just wanted to show off Tom brought up animation, though, which is a, as good an introduction as any into the, the, the presence in this episode of Texas. <laughs> Do you mean Texas the state or Texas the colony? The colony. Is this the first mention of Texas the colony? Yes. Yes. Okay. It does. It really feels like an excuse for a setting that they thought would be cool for a battle. Yeah. Because it's so flimsy. <laughs> this entire colony exists to, uh, I don't know, breed cattle and for people to for vacation. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a Texas-themed amusement park. Cattle breeding and leisure. Hmm. As, as Isn't a person, that what people do in Texas? As a person who has both studied Westerns and lived in Texas, the desert with the big stone pillars, that's modeled on Monument Valley, which is not in Texas. <laughs> 
maybe, grumble, 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 maybe grumble, grumble. in the history of the universal century, Texas has annexed some neighboring states. <laughs> and don't yet, tell me. Don't and, try. And to, yet they're not lab growing their beef. Don't try to convince me that Texans would not annex other states. Oh, they would. <laughs> and don't try to convince me that Texans would give up cattle in exchange for lab grown beef. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. I love the, the throwing in the, the covered wagon in there as well. <laughs> that felt so ridiculous. <laughs> well, and, and then what we, even was the point of that? To draw We're, a covered wagon, obviously. Because later <laughs> we see Lala in a buggy. We see yeah, her yeah. in a motorized vehicle. So clearly they have them there. They have cars. They have mobile suits. They just really wanted a covered wagon. The fact that it's stuck in perpetual twilight just feels like an excuse for them to have that glorious shot of the Gundam standing at the entrance with the long shadow behind Mm -hmm. or in front of it. I will say, though, that was remarkably restrained of them. I would have expected, given the amount of Texas pandering going on here and the clear homages to Westerns, I really would have expected the colony to be stuck at perpetual high noon. But high noon doesn't have the dramatic shadows, I think, from a visual perspective. I feel like there was a real missed opportunity for a quick drop showdown yeah Yeah. was it just me or when the gundam first enters the texas colony we get that very long shadow shot when it's still holding the rifle in one hand and the beat up shield in the other doesn't the shadow look like a gunslinger with two guns yes it does okay i'm glad that that wasn't just me that was on purpose it's got to have been well i it very much feels like a setting that is that was chosen so that it could showcase various emotional beats of the story the forest, the sandstorm, the stampede. We'll talk about all of these moments when we talk about the battle in more detail. But yeah, hey, if it is stuck at perpetual twilight and it has rendered the entire colony into a desert, why is there still a forest there in leaf? They're evergreens. <laughs> no, they weren't. I thought I could have sworn those were like, Look, that was a pine Look, you're focusing on the trees and not on the obvious emotional turmoil of those livestock. I think, <laughs> also, I think evergreens would still die in I mean, a desert. They would. I'm just <laughs> nitpicking you. <laughs> Th- that herd has not had a decent night's sleep in months. Yeah, or like grass. <laughs> this whole thing with the Texas in space doesn't add up. We mentioned the covered wagon earlier. I found myself wondering in that same scene, one, why has Shar brought Lala here? He actually answers this question later kind of obliquely. After seeing McVeigh and Amaro fight, he's like, uh, as I suspected, you know, quick observations are not going to do it. He has at various points wanted Lala to watch the Gundam in combat. Mm-hmm. And it has gotten closer and closer each time. The first time it's on a TV screen. The second time it's from near but not in a combat. Third time she's there in person, just not involved. Mm -hmm. Closer and closer proximity and a lot of observation. He clearly feels that this observation is essential to her being a good pilot. And if we doubted for a second that that was her intended purpose, she actually asks him about it. You know, do you think I'm ready to pilot the Elmeth? And he is quite confident she will be better than him. And he says, well, that's that's why I picked you. <laughs> Not only is Lala there to observe the battle, Lala is there to be observed because also in the covered wagon <laughs> is Lanigan, who has the most Old West kind of mustache, which I assume he just grew specifically <laughs> for this episode. For, for this vacation in Texas. Yeah, it's the it's the mutton chops into mustache one with no, uh, no, beard. no beard. No chin beard. Yeah, it's uh, it's a look. It is a very, look. Very Civil War general. <laughs> 
and and Flanagan is there to monitor Lala's brainwaves. I did appreciate them specifying that because from the way the the shot is composed, you can't. He's just like looking into the other side mm-hmm. of the covered wagon. Mm-hmm. Uh, for an episode that spent a lot of time with like great detail work and the animation, you don't see his instruments at all. <laughs> yeah. He just seems to be sitting there along for the ride until Char asks him. He has a line about her brainwaves resonating in a way that he has never noticed before, which tells us one very important thing. So at Flanagan's Institute, I believe that's what Char calls it, Lala is being studied, possibly trained, experimented on, we don't know. Definitely trained because we know she's been firing at practice targets and she hits them with 70% accuracy. Is that supposed to be good? Apparently, they seem impressed. However, he's never seen her brainwaves resonate this way. That means they do not have any other espers around her. I think it's fair to say that and again, we'll talk about this in more detail when we talk about the combat, the interplay of her powers and Amaro's, their proximate exposure to each other. Uh, also, I'm sure the fact that it's at a moment of high emotional strain mm-hmm. because of the combat seems to be causing an interaction, seems to be causing a change in her brainwaves, a change in his brainwaves, even though nobody's monitoring them. So unless you think that is unique to Amaro plus Lala... <laughs> It means that she's never been around another powerful Esper before. I don't think you should read it that far because I think there's some evidence in this show, in this episode, that she has been around another Esper before. Because when Amuro senses Lala during the battle, he, he, he says something like, like, I sense someone, I sense something. And then he says, but it's not Char because he's sensed Char before. This feeling of sensing someone else is something that he's experienced before, but it's always been Char. So I always assumed that that his ability to sense Char is because of the close combat that they've been in. We've never had any sense that Char senses him. And while that initial feeling, he does say, oh, this is like when I sense Char, but not the same. The progression of that and the, the way that it escalates <laughs> is totally unlike anything he's experienced near Char before. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, a, it's definitely a, a sui generis experience. It's nothing he's had before. But when he's... Um, you need to explain sui generis. Yeah, I like, definitely went eyebrow raised over <laughs> here. There's no, no precedent for it. Um, but I don't think you're right that there's been no indications that Char senses Amuro. Because going back to side six with the Char's roadside assistance scene, I think there's an, there's an indication there that Char has a sense of familiarity with Amuro that is not explained any other kind of way. I don't know. Well, so do you think the interplay between Amuro and Lala is something unique to them as people? Like, why do you think they have such a strong reaction then? I think this is that sense of transcendence that we've been discussing about Amuro, where we were talking about him and Fra and how Amuro has sort of moved beyond and become something else. Lala has also transcended. She she did so before Amuro, and Amuro's encounters with Lala have been part of pushing him into this next like state of awareness. And so what was always there, but was sort of weak and unconscious and nascent and experienced only as kind of gut feelings and a sense of familiarity has now become something more. And Amuro is in the process of opening that third eye. And Lala is already there. Maybe Lala has never been around another awakened Esper before. I don't know. I suppose we'll wait and see. It really depends on whether the various sort of minor indications of Esperism that we've seen in other characters are real or not, right? Like, are those people actually sort of dormant, mm-hmm. but have the capability? Uh, like Haman, like Mirai. Sela on occasion. Mm-hmm. 
We did not talk about this when Lala first appeared. I didn't quite have my impression of her summed up, but this seems like a good time to talk about it. My initial impression, because of the way that she's drawn, because of the way that she's voiced and the lines they give her, even though we don't know very much of her backstory, is that she is someone mentally and emotionally damaged Mm -hmm. by being an orphan, by growing up in an institution, by her own abilities. We don't know precisely, but she has that vacillating between seeming wise and seeming childlike. Mm -hmm. However, we see her look adoringly at Char. We also see her hide things from him. Mm -hmm. She has sensations. She perceives things and chooses not to tell him about them. Even when he can tell something is up, even when he asks her, uh, and it's unclear, we have we've had no indication that she doesn't trust her own perception. Mm-hmm. She seems to to trust her abilities and have a certain amount of confidence in them. We see her predict the death of the swan, for instance, and she's not hesitant about it. She's like, oh, it's so sad, long before we see the swan plummet. Uh, so she may have some distrust of Char. We know she is not privy to his motives because she wonders why he steps out of the combat. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we also know she's like she seems to ad- adore him, right? She seems to um to look up to him, to like crave his attention, crave his affirmation. That's definitely true. I just can't think of another explanation for her not telling him everything other than perhaps some, despite all of those feelings that you've just described, some reticence on her part with regard to him. Mm-hmm. Well, we know she was an orphan. We know she was, she's been of late raised in this institute for studying espers, we presume. As you said, she seems very damaged. She's had a very difficult life. She's probably learned to be very suspicious of everybody and to conceal a lot of things about her, especially about her powers. And so even if she's attached herself to Shar in this like, you know, quasi family, quasi student, but with like not exactly romantic or sexual overtones, but sort of like adulation. I get a little bit of a infatuation. I get a little bit of a senpai kohai vibe, uh, which is to say that Shar is someone that Lala is meant to emulate, that it's not quite master and disciple. They are closer than that. He's sort of like her her slightly senior comrade hmm. uh, who she looks up to and wants to be like. Oh, hey, that was how Garma felt about Shar. Eh. I'm sure it's not important. No relevance here. Speaking of Shar... People wanting to show up, Char, seems to be the downfall of the entire (laughs) Xeon army. Every time somebody's like, I'm going to show that Char. Yeah. So when Char first says that in this episode, he says, oh, McVeigh is just trying to to do this despite me. My initial thought was like, no, he's not. McVeigh is doing this to like prove himself to Kaecilia. Why are you so like, why is Char being so conceited in this? (laughs) But McVeigh literally. (laughs) McVeigh literally cops to it. I don't remember how exactly he phrases it, but he explicitly states that he needs to show up Shar. <laughs> uh. Uh, McVeigh does something we haven't really seen anybody do uh, with the Gundam, which is focus on traps. Yeah, I mean, that's McVeigh's personality all over. The last time we really encountered him was during the Battle of Odessa, where it was all about deceit and information. He had double agents, and he brought down the white base by luring them into a trap. That is clearly how he fights, and I appreciate the consistency there. And here, it's not even just one, but a whole series. Mm -hmm. First, using the Doms to lure the Gundam away. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
to a place where McVeigh is hiding and is able to spring out at the Gundam unexpectedly. So there's a concept called defense in depth, which is a, a strategic term. It gets applied in a bunch of different situations. It was used a lot by the late Roman Empire, for instance, when they were dealing with barbarian incursions. It was also used a lot by uh, Japanese armed forces during the Second World War, defending islands after the strategic situation had taken a turn against them and they were no longer able to defend on the beaches. The plan was you would allow the allies to land on the beaches and then you would sort of fight a slow retreat, luring them deeper and deeper into the interior of the island, which would be full of traps and mines and redoubts where you could hold out for a little while and inflict a lot of damage and then fall back again. The second trap is the door to the interior of the Texas colony is rigged with an explosive. When it opens fully, uh, it explodes and knocks the Gundam down. He then manages to lure the Gundam into a field of small mines. <laughs> so really, he's thought a lot about this. He's thought a lot about how he can slowly but surely uh, damage and disorient the Gundam so that he can create moments to attack. Yeah, it seems from the, the nature of the traps... McVeigh's tactics here are less about um, whittling away at the Gundam and more about whittling away at the Gundam's pilot. Mm. Mm. Uh, in every stage where he uses a trap, uh, and we've got there are the mines in the asteroid, and then there's the rigged explosive at the door, and then there's the floating minefield, to which Amaro even says, like, these won't these are not going to damage the Gundam. These are not gonna hurt me. I can I can get through these. But more importantly, what each of them do is they bring Amaro to a specific location of McVeigh's choosing and then immediately disorient him. McVeigh is standing atop the asteroid and gets the Gundam to fly directly at him and then changes the scenario, disorients him, uh, has Amuro fly into what he thinks is going to be a fight, and then changes the rules. Same thing, Amuro enters into uh, the Texas base, and we even we have that, that glorious moment where he throws away his shield because it's useless. He presses the button, and he knows that he's entering this field, and then the door opens, and boom, gets mm -hmm. him again, knocks him down. Not that there's any damage done, not that there's no sneak attack coming at this moment, there's no sniper ready to pounce on him, uh, but it's just about making him question everything, taking away from his confidence. And then the minefield, the minefield doesn't really do anything to the Gundam. All it does is take Amaro's sense of location, of his sense of initiative, and completely mess with uh, his ability to plan or to assess his situation. Mm -hmm. um, so that by the time McVeigh actually engages the Gundam, he is in a psychologically superior position that he can then hopefully turn into a tactical advantage. Something that I noticed uh, in the setup to the battle were that both McVeigh and Char mention how their mobile suits are new and untested. Uh, and I, I think this spoke a lot, particularly to McVeigh's character in his sense of planning. Uh, he is not coming to this fight with the most powerful mobile suit that is going to cleave through the Gundam's armor. He comes loaded to bear with all of these uh, tools that he's going to use to control the battlefield. In fact, the most damage he does to the Gundam is with his, his beam sword. He, he uh, thrusts in and cuts across the helm uh, of the Gundam on the, I think, like the right cheek. Yeah. It's very dramatic. It's a great shot. If they were people, this would be the blood coming down the, the cheek, right? Exactly, yeah. He slashed right underneath the eye. This is Eowyn riding through the forest with Frodo on the horse. And the branch <laughs> just flicks right across. 
And the, the new mobile suit that McVeigh is using, the Gyan, is not just a new prototype mobile suit. It's one that was developed specifically for McVeigh on his orders. So this is the first time we've encountered something like this in Gundam, where a mobile suit is designed for a specific person. It feels significant then that this mobile suit looks like uh, looks like Western knight's armor? Uh, sort of, right? The helmet is definitely a Western knight's helmet. But the shield and the a lot of the armor looks very uh, Greek hoplite. Mm. The round shield. Yeah, mm-hmm. the round shield is much more... The shield is very deep. I think the term for shields is dished. It's a very deeply dished shield. Um, and then he's kind of got the skirting, which is, is familiar from hoplite armor. Um, and there's actually some details to the armor that do kind of look like the shoulder pieces from uh, a hoplite's... Um, what's the armor piece called? Lenothorax. <laughs> yeah, just reach into that classics major and pull that out. Um, so this suggests both McVeigh's, you know, clear Western imperialist aristocrat coding with the, the sort of knightly presentation of parts of the mobile suit, but also his uh, antiquarian nature that he's a, you know, a studier of the past, a collector of beautiful objects from the past. The Vaz is still here. <laughs> Vaz Sama. It really does take the place of the evil villain's cat, right? It's like sitting in his lap and he's holding <laughs> it while he's talking about his plans. Yeah. And it's the, it's the one thing that he truly loves. It's what he thinks of in his last moments. So I do want to talk about the shield. I, I'm very, very interested in McVeigh's shield. Okay. Um, the first time we see the mobile suit and that shield is there, my initial thought uh, was, why, why is there a shield? Um, particularly around shield. Because uh, the Gundam has a shield, but it, it's, it's much more rectangular in shape. Uh, and functions much more like a piece of cover that the Gundam can hold in front while firing with its firing with its main cannon. Um, but the round shield does not really provide uh, the Gyan with a whole lot of coverage. And it's also, and coming into this episode, especially with the title The Duel in Texas, the episode primes the viewer to imagine and expect one-on-one combat, or in the case of this fight, one uh, v one uh, v one sometimes, and the thing about the round shield is that it's it, it's not a tool that one sees employed in in duels in personal one on one combat. The best thing about a shield is that it provides you an extra piece of protection against lots of angles of attack. Uh, it also, though, however. Be- can be very cumbersome because you're using 50% of your line uh, to manipulate a large object and the other half of your line is, you're only able to use half of your line then for an offense. And this is talking in terms of the use of a shield in, in, in kind of traditional manner. So I was very interested to see uh, if this was going to kind of turn into a hack and slash, like sword and board fight between these two. Uh, and then I was instantly delighted the moment that McVeigh's shield just starts launching yes. these flechettes. Uh, I called them tiny swords. Tiny. And then Sean and Tom decided they needed to be like proper about this and call them something else. They are tiny swords. Tiny, I, tiny swords is, <laughs> is perfectly appropriate, I think. Uh, but it was this extra detail on 
uh, McVeigh has had this mobile suit built just for him to his specifications to fight the way he wants to fight. He even says that to uh, to Char later on. Um, And it's this additional layer of deception and trickery. He never uses the shield as a shield. It's just another weapon that's designed to lure you into an expectation and then change the game on you. I really liked that McVeigh's shield is the weapon that destroys the Gundam's shield. We do see an interesting interplay. You mentioned McVeigh telling Char. They have that moment of confrontation. And it's a beautiful shot on the screen where the screen's divided into four images. Char in one corner, uh, Char's face in one corner, McVeigh's face in the other corner, and then two parts of their mobile suits grappling almost, locked together in the other two corners. And I mean, Char joined the combat. Char jumped in to help, ostensibly. Uh, McVeigh waves him off. So Char didn't go into this planning on getting McVeigh killed. Though at one point he does say, uh, I was hoping the Gundam would take care of him for me. Well, McVeigh is putting up a better fight than I expected. That's what I was going to mention, that he he's willing to take advantage of the situation, but... And we, and because he's willing to take advantage of the situation, we find out that he would eventually like McVeigh out of the picture, uh, presumably because this leaves Kaecilia more vulnerable. If if Char's big plan is kill all the zombies, <laughs> uh, then anything that leaves Kaecilia in a more vulnerable position is good. And we know McVeigh is very loyal to her. Yeah. Uh, but this, he had not perhaps reached that part of his plan yet. That was not the intended outcome here and now. Oh, McVeigh is the first character in Gundam to say Atarashi type. New type. Yeah. This is the first time new type has shown up in the subtitles. I'm sure it's not important. Which means we can now officially stop saying Esper. <laughs> but do you want to? <laughs> I mean, we don't know that this terminology is going to stick. It could go back to Esper like next episode. I have to say I was a little disappointed uh, because having only heard about it in conversation with Tom and Nina, I was really expecting it to be a new type with a U and umlauts, kind of like new metal. (laughs) (laughs) I was a little disappointed. Missed opportunity. You know, at the very end, you mentioned he thinks of the vase in his last moments. When he tells Urugang, make sure the vase gets to Lady Kaecilia, it's very valuable. I really want there to be state secrets or something hidden in the vase, like <laughs> like a little flash drive with some top secret blueprints or something. But I think it might just be a vase. McVeigh's poetry is hidden inside. <laughs> <laughs> All his love poems to Lady Caecilia. Okay, we can move on now. Okay. I just wanted to say I would like the vase to have greater importance, but I'm pretty sure it's just a vase. I don't know which would be more McVeigh. For the vase to be yet another deception and actually contain valuable information, or for the vase to just be a really old, beautiful vase. These are the two parts of his personality warring with each other. (laughs) We talked about the Gyan. We talked about McVeigh. We talked about Char. Let's talk for a second about the Gelguk, which, by the way, is such a good name that we know from some of the early design drafts that various other things were called the Gelguk before it settled on this mobile suit. Tomino just liked the name so much, he just kept shuffling it around until he found something that it stuck on. Gerugug. Gerugug. Yep. So the Gelguk, right? <laughs> you express that verbally. Sean uh. <laughs> keeps making this, he's making this face Disgusted and he's shaking face. his head. Yeah. It's, like a, he's, it's like when a Muppet gets punched in the face and it just becomes a, a sphincter and a sphere. That's he, my face right now. So he does that every time I say the word Gelguk. <laughs> Gerugug. So I'm just going to keep- It's better. It is better in Japanese. <laughs> I am going to keep saying Gelguk as many times as I can. <laughs> Don't spit take on the mic. 
It's bad for it. So when the Gelgoog gets introduced, we find out that, well, we don't really find out. This is something we've known for a while, but it's being reaffirmed now. The very desperate state of Xeon's mobile suit production, because they're having difficulties getting what they're asking for. Shar asked for uh, the Elmeth and his Gelgoog, but he only gets the Gelgoog and he's not able to get the other the other bit. Um, and this was something that came up during the Solomon episodes where Dozel gets the Big Zom. And he says the first thing he says before he falls in love with the Big Zom later on in the episode. But the first thing he says is, why send me just one cutting edge mobile suit? You should have sent me 10 doms instead. And then the the guy who's delivered the Big Zom actually says, well, it's uh, it's not even cutting edge. It's actually a prototype. Sorry. Um yeah, Xeon is, Xeon is having shortages and is having difficulty delivering all of these mobile suits to all these people who need them. Even Char, even Char can't get what he needs. But he does get the Gelgoog. And the Gelgoog is really interesting, especially in this episode where we can contrast it to the Gyan as another mobile suit that was created specifically for somebody. And so, you know, we can read the aesthetics, we can read the, the abilities, the weapons of the mobile suit as reflecting its operator. And... The Gelgoog is basically a Xeon Gundam. It's got the beam rifle. It's the first Xeon uh, mobile suit to have a beam rifle. It's got the shield, which is very similarly shaped to the Gundam's shield. And it has some sort of melee weapon, which we haven't seen in action yet, but it does have some sort of melee weapon, which it wears on its shoulder, very much like the Gundam. Shar has got his own Gundam. But this one's red. (laughs) All right, I think we are ready to get into the nitty gritty of the combat itself. All right, let's get gritty. That will be easy with the sandstorms. <laughs> I was thinking the the flyers mascot. <laughs> well, so we've talked about we've talked about the traps, right, which really make up the bulk of the combat time wise. Yes, and so it's only once the traps have all been set off and Amuro has expended all of the ammunition in his beam rifle that we get into the duel in Texas, uh, and we get Amuro dueling the Gyan, which attacks him very much like a fencer. Yeah, I was struck by that. And it, it ties in a lot with what you've said about McVeigh's um, kind of Eurocentric aristocratic background. Um, it's also interesting because this is not the first time that I've seen this very specific setup into this kind of European style lunch. Uh, I remember seeing a similar uh, bit of animation in uh, the Rurouni Kenshin anime. Mm. Uh, And it's also used a lot in Sword Art Online. Um, Really, any place that there's going to be a character who's using either a Western fencing implement, an epee or a foil, um, not a saber, because that's a cutting implement, um, or in a uh, medieval style, quote unquote medieval, it's not a medieval weapon, but in a thing like Sword Art Online, where we have lots of of uh, bladed weapons around someone using a rapier. Mm -hmm. Um, For those who don't know, the rapier is a uh, late 15th to mid 16th century uh, sword. Uh, It's a transitional piece between what you would think of as the kind of knightly uh, cutting implement that can also thrust um, into eventually what becomes the small sword or the court sword, which is what you find during kind of the American Revolution. If any statue of a uh, colonial hero is going to be wearing a small sword and that is what becomes uh, European fencing. It is almost exclusively a, a thrusting and piercing weapon. So the rapier has exists in this very specific time frame where uh, 
smiths and, and combatants are trying to develop both a cutting and thrusting implement uh, before uh, what becomes known as the supremacy of the point really takes off. And people go, why spend all this time trying to cut you when I can just poke you full of holes? <laughs> so when you say the setup, you're referring to this weird like hand and arm posture that the Gyan does with its blade when there's McVeigh a lo- first attacks? Yeah, there's what it tends to be is uh, if, if the character or mobile suit in this case is being animated with the sword in the right arm, uh, bringing that right arm all the way up to the left shoulder. Uh, which uh, compositionally is really great because it brings the weapon in line with torso and you can get a very expressive shot of the person using the weapon, kind of almost the full torso and the head, and you can see the entire weapon mm. in this kind of coiled position that can then explode into the attack. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful dramatic image as opposed to having the weapon just kind of extend from the same side of the body, which is mechanically simpler and arguably quicker and more effective, but does not tell as full of a story as having the weapon come all the way across the body. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see this kind of in that initial attack from McVeigh. Um, I did have a note. It does look very odd uh, (laughs) because at this point, McVeigh still has the the shield thing. We we need a better name for that shield. That that shield should have a special name. What's the round shield called, Tom? I believe it is an aspis. So we need to, so like an aspis Fachette thing. <laughs> there, there, I'm sure there's got to be a special name. So having this attack come in such a great angle, it is odd to have the shield there. It's an odd attack to do while having half of your body encumbered by this large device. What would the shield holding hand be doing if it weren't holding a shield? Well, depending on your school of thought, it might be preparing to extend either above or behind you as a counterbalance or as a biomechanical counterpoint as you're going to thrust. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it may also, uh, for a a human combatant, um, it may also be... Uh, present in front of the body to deflect or impede counterattacks or counterthrusts. Um, there is a lot of debate as to how one would use that hand, um, particularly because even a you know a small cut on the hand could still eventually prove fatal. Um, but similarly, though, um, one would rather be pierced through the hand than pierced through the neck. <laughs> so you could you could also you could have that hand across the body to in, in a sacrificial limb Mm. should the worst happen. The thrusts that follow this setup um, come in a barrage. Mm -hmm. It it does show the conversation that uh, evolves around swords. Uh, From my background, I know this most through the evolution into the small sword. Um, I have seen some evidence that it also exists in uh, the Chinese swordplay as well, but I don't have a background in that to to really talk about that for timeline-wise. But these thrusts that come one after the other after the other uh, play on this notion that thrust is fast. Uh, and the attacks come uh, and Amaro is so disoriented by the traps and I would even argue that the the tactic of, of getting the Gundam to run out of its cannon ammunition is a continuation of McVeigh's tactics. He even says, ha, it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, so Amaro is stunned and unprepared. He's very much on the back foot. He's, he's, defending, he's defending very well. Right? He has a kind of uh, Agent Smith in the Matrix moment where he's like weaving all, every which way around these sword thrusts and he is able to evade all of them, which is very impressive, but he's 
also not able to turn it back around and counterattack. Yes, being defensive and surviving an attack is the lowest level of defense <laughs> because he has all of these other tools at his disposal. He's in the most advanced mobile suit and it's all that he can do is avoid at this moment. Well, and we've seen him at other points before he entered Texas fighting other mobile suits and seamlessly evading and attacking, evading and attacking. It's very fluid. It's very easy for him to do this in most cases, but not here. No, I think it's very telling that Amuro doesn't seem to really be able to tap into his special powers or his special skills in in these fights with McVeigh and, and Shar. I mean, it may just be that he's overwhelmed. Those attacks are coming so quickly, but it's probably also the result of all of McVeigh's efforts to destabilize Amuro. Absolutely. To disorient him. Now, the battle of the mind comes before the battle of the body. Mm -hmm. Once Amuro is able to draw one of his beam sabers, uh, we start getting into some more um, classic swordplay. And uh, McVeigh does start doing a little bit more of uh, what seem to be more kind of cutting attacks. That they may also just be deflections of thrusts that are being parried. The animation is fairly quick uh, and they don't really, uh, not a lot of specificity or focus is put on the actual movement of the weapons so much as the movement of the mobile suits and McVeigh's pressing on the Gundam mm -hmm. and the Gundam moving from just being able to evade to now I have a weapon that I can counterattack with, but even so not being able to. And then when Amuro is actually able to effectively counterattack, it's when he draws the second beam saber, but that's separated both temporally because we sort of cut to an intercut, but then it's also separated spatially because we get a cut to the herd of bison <laughs> because this is Texas colony, a herd of bison runs by and with them moving in the same plane of motion, we have the Gundam like running away from the Gyan, and then Amuro gets a little bit of distance, stops, he turns, he draws the second beam saber, and then he goes on the offensive. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, he gets a little distance. If you can control the distance, that gives you the opportunity to assess, to, to get your footing. Either just before or just after the stampede moment, we have a very significant moment of connection between Amuro and Lala. It's just before, because I remembered that they do a really cool cool thing with the sound it gets to be this like it's this like grating buzzing Distorting. distorted sound that like starts to get into your head as the viewer and it meshes with the stampede sound from the bison so once Amuro is able to get a little bit of distance, he draws his second weapon. Because right now he's been having just one beam saber against McVeigh's saber and shield. Insert better name for shield here. <laughs> Not going to drop this. That shield deserves its own name. Once Amuro is able to get that second beam saber, things turn very quickly. I don't think he actually cuts the shield in half, but he, he kind of cleaves away a big chunk of it. He renders like the shield an, It's useless. like an X cut on the shield, I think. Right, okay. Which is, I think, a more symbolic than anything else, because the shield has not been used in any defensive capacity. He's not chipping away at the armor of McVeigh's mobile suit. He's cutting through the defense, but he's also cutting through the deception and distraction, the tools that McVeigh has used to gain the upper hand in this entire combat. And once he's able to do that and reestablish his skill, reestablish his confidence, uh, then we get into the final moments of this conflict, which I, I found very odd uh, in a very <laughs> fun way. Mm -hmm. He's got, he has these two super technologically advanced, you know, energy projection, you know, sabers. And he bull rushes him yeah. into this odd kind of reverse scissor. 
Um, it's it's a, a very odd choice. It has to be specific. Well, and it coincides with something Amuro says, because he doesn't say, like, I've got you now. He doesn't give a Kai whoop and like blow <laughs> McVeigh away now that he has the advantage. He goes in for this this bull rush, this this hug, basically, and he says, You can't stand up to the Gundam's power. And he's having this like massive psychic experience as this is happening. And then as he's pulling away, the beam sabers cut into the sides of the Gyan. And I don't know that it was entirely intentional. Ah, interesting. In terms of the kind of the assemblage of the moment and the choreography, the, the thing that just keeps jumping out at me is how raw it is. It is not a martial choice. It's not coming from a, this is a effective and efficient way to dispatch that which is currently giving me trouble. Uh, it seems to come from this this place of acknowledgement of power and acknowledgement of of position, not physical position, but hierarchical and metaphysical. Uh, and, and I think that seems to really bridge this gap. McVeigh shows up to the party with a brand new mobile suit that is built specifically for him with all of these tools and all of this trickery. And he loses partially because he cannot adapt. He keeps, he keeps going through tools and tools and tools and tools and tools, and they seem to work and they seem to work and seem to work until he's just got his beam saber, or maybe he's got a bunch of other tools he just doesn't use. We don't know. Um, but then once he thinks he's got this in the bag, he stops changing his tactics. And it, it, the exact opposite is what happens with Amuro. Amuro um, is, he keeps getting lured into these traps. He is getting psychologically hounded and beaten down and disoriented and beaten down and beaten down and beaten down. And the moment he catches his breath and gets a beam saber out and then he gets his footing and he gets his second beam saber out and he goes, wait a minute, you know, this is what I do. This is where I am powerful. And instead of reveling in that he just embraces that raw primal urge and i can't help but think because of the sequence of events that this is not in, in, intrinsically tied into his communing with lala this mm. deep-seated psychological emotional spiritual uh presence that he can feel but doesn't necessarily understand it's all reactionary yeah, I, yeah. he definitely doesn't understand it yet <laughs> even though it's happened to him several times now he does not have the guidance Lala has. Well, and this is far and away the most powerful experience like this that he's had. And he's just, he's overwhelmed by it. That is a really trippy experience. I have it in my notes as the experience. <laughs> <laughs> there's lights, there's colors. We get this shot of like Amuro in the cockpit, but it's, you don't see any of the Gundam or any of the instruments. It's just him in the chair. It looks like a throne. Yeah, I was going to say, Ooh. it feels somehow very different from if we just saw him. It intrinsically connects his experience to piloting the Gundam. Mm. It connects his experiences with the Gundam to what is happening now. Yeah. Right? She's not connecting just to Amuro the individual. She's connecting to Amuro the cyborg, Amuro the part of the Gundam, mm -hmm. or you know, Amuro plus Gundam entity. Yeah. And then they... They like know each other through this connection. It's got real deep, man. <laughs> <laughs> Another note of how the Federation are not the baddies, but not the goodies. We know that Federation High Command knows about Amaro's powers. They have admitted on several occasions that they think he's special. They ran tests on his brainwaves, but no one else's. They know. 
And yet where Lala has received something resembling training, Amuro is being allowed to flounder about <laughs> and figure it out for himself. Well, but whether whether that's for the best or not depends on what life is like in the Flanagan Institute. And we have not seen that. All we have seen is its product. That's true. However, it's hard to see what harm there could be in someone telling him, hey, so just so you don't think you're going crazy, here's what we think's happening. <laughs> Well, Matilda told him he was maybe an Esper. That should be enough. He's good. <laughs> there is actually one thing about Char in the fight, which I thought was interesting, which is that this is a, a return of Char's protective behavior over the soldiers who serve under him, which we saw a bit of early on and then abandoned him for quite a while. But now with Lala, Shar is willing to go to pretty uh, great lengths to look after Lala, to take care of her. And we get a scene of him using his mobile suit to shield her from the blast when the Gyan goes critical. He was very aware of where she was throughout the combat. And she is first in his thoughts when he sees the, the end of the combat. He makes that connection immediately that she needs protecting, that she wouldn't be safe just standing nearby. Mm-hmm. I think there is a sense of honor with Shar that comes through in this fight. Um, his We can question kind of his intentions joining the combat, um, but at no point do, the, do Shar and McVeigh team up. They, they never try to use numbers. Uh, and once McVeigh uh, engages with the Gundam in melee, Shar uh, watches. And even when, as you were saying, he immediately turns to protect Lala once the Gyam starts to explode, uh, as opposed to seizing the opportunity to possibly take out the Gundam. Yeah. He's much more interested in teaching Lala and giving her information, but I also think to protect a non-combatant. Does he potentially need Lala if he takes the Gundam out now? See, I think, you know, we've had a couple of episodes in the past. We've had comments from Shar about how it's his destiny to fight and to beat the White Base and the Gundam. He's talked about it. It's like a consuming obsession for him, like his greatest desire in the world. And so it's a little strange to see him with an opportunity like this, with Gundam right in front of him, not to take it. But Alternatively, to not then go and be like, ah, the Gundam is not protecting the white base. I'm going to go attack the white base. Right. But the thing is, I don't think that Shar wants to destroy the Gundam. I think Shar wants to beat the Gundam. Shar wants to defeat the Gundam. Shar wants to be better than the Gundam. And he can't do that if he takes advantage of a moment of weakness or he teams up with McVeigh. Yeah, I think it's it's really indicative of character. And do is your objective to tear something down or to leap and surpass it? Sean, I have looked it up and the shield is called Miseru Shirudo, missile shield. I will accept missile shield. Thank you for having me on Mobile Suit Breakdown. I had a great time. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. And I'm sure we'll have you back soon. This week, we research and discuss westerns in Japan, the classical Greek armor that may have inspired the Gyan, and dueling in Texas. Duel in Texas was a surprising episode title to read <laughs> on an episode that wound up being quite visually striking. Many elements of the setting and the action reference the westerns film genre. 
the desert, the tall stone plateaus that look like Utah and Nevada's Monument Valley, the stampede of bison, the sandstorms, the ways mobile suits and even the white base use cover in this episode. <laughs> the white base does the equivalent of crouching behind a half wall for most of the episode, <laughs> just like peeking out to shoot and then dropping back behind it. There are a bunch of scenes where we see the Gundam or we see the Gelgoog and then shots land near it coming from somewhere mysterious off screen. And that's a very common thing to do in action scenes in Westerns. Yeah, You're like, focused oh, in on the main character. Where did that shot come from? Right. And then it goes like, because it hits somewhere really nearby. We mentioned this in the talkback, but when the Gundam is at the exterior entrance to the Texas colony, the way that its shadow looks is very much like hero from a Western with their rifle at their side, long shadow down Main Street kind of. <laughs> uh, so what I wanted to know is, were Westerns popular in Japan? Did Japanese filmmakers experiment with the genre? When did those films come out and were they popular? This is something I think a lot of people who are really into film know, but may not be familiar to the rest of you. A lot of Westerns were inspired by uh, Japanese chambara, which are the samurai films. Uh, Magnificent Seven is a straight, like, Western version of Seven Samurai. <laughs> it's explicit. It's not. <laughs> Everyone's very upfront about that. Um, a Fistful of Dollars, which is a spaghetti Western, is a remake of Yojimbo. There was a lot of influence going back and forth. Would you explain what a spaghetti Western is? Spaghetti Westerns are Westerns made in Italy by Italian directors, sometimes with American actors. Actually, I think sometimes they filmed in the United States, too, but mainly <laughs> mainly Italian production mm -hmm. is the point. Uh, a really great source that I found described Westerns made in Asia as Eastern Westerns. <laughs> so I'm going to keep calling them that. I will be calling them Sobo Westerns. Uh, Westerns are a very versatile genre and can be used in a number of different contexts. Uh, this particular book, which I'll source in the show notes, talks about how like outlawry is not unique to the American West. <laughs> <laughs> Having outlaws to fight is not some purely American thing. And there were actually quite a lot of Westerns made in the Philippines. There were some made in Thailand and in China. Like It is a genre that got picked up and used in Asia. For some illustrative examples of Japanese westerns, one of the first that I found a record of was called Daisogen no Wataridori, which is translated generally as Plains Wanderer, which came out in 1960. It's part of a nine-film wanderer series by Nikatsu Studios. <laughs> Eastern westerns were a popular subgenre within Nikatsu's action films. Uh, they filmed it in Hokkaido. If you had to pick one place in Japan <laughs> to film westerns, <laughs> Hokkaido has plains, it has mountains, it has cattle. It feels foreign to people in other parts of Japan. Uh, and in the story, the hero helps the indigenous Ainu community fight against a developer who wants to turn their land into an airstrip. So it's contemporary, obviously. We're talking about land. I mean, land barons, there have always been, but turning it, their <laughs> land into an airstrip is clearly modern. Mm -hmm. In an older Western, it would have been for the railroad. Right. Another is Shotogan no Otoko, which is also called Sandanju no Otoko, uh, the man with a shotgun or the man with the hollow tipped bullets, <laughs> 1961. This film's director, Suzuki Sejun, said in an interview, Nikatsu focused on contemporary settings because in the old studio system, actors only worked with one studio at a time and they didn't have great jidaigeki actors. They didn't have great period film actors, actors for those sword dramas. So they decided to focus on contemporary settings. Seijun also directed Tokyo Drifter, 
which is probably one of his best-known films in the West. Really great movie. <laughs> and finally, Koya no Tosenin, which I thought was particularly fascinating. This one came out in 1968, was a partnership with numerous Australian studios and filmed in Australia with a mostly Australian cast, but a Japanese lead, Ken Takakura, who was a huge star at the time. And in an article I found, it was from an Australian women's magazine, uh, they say <laughs> in Japan he was known as the young Gary Cooper. Later, his sort of brooding and stoic style would get him compared to Clint Eastwood. This film was dubbed in English. The setting was in the United States. They filmed in Australia because it's more convenient for Japan. But the idea was that the story was taking place in the United States and then would be subtitled into Japanese <laughs> for a Japanese audience. The studio executives who were interviewed had a whole story justification for why this Japanese man was an American cowboy. <laughs> Uh, and also said they couldn't film in Japan because the terrain was all wrong. There was no local cowboy tradition in Japan. And that at the time, Japanese audiences seemed to prefer American Westerns with subtitles to the locally made Westerns. I wonder if this movie is full of Australians attempting terrible American accents. It's possible, but I doubt it. I doubt they bothered. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these stories tended to have good-hearted heroes fighting injustice, not the anti-heroes you see in some American. American and, and spaghetti westerns, and to set their stories in wild or foreign places, even when they had that contemporary setting. Point is, homegrown westerns existed and were popular, <laughs> and American westerns were also widely shown in cinemas in Japan in the you know decade or so before Gundam came out. All of the crew would have been familiar with the genre. Everyone involved in Mobile Suit Gundam would have been familiar with <laughs> what a Western was and the, how it worked. In the same way that we all kind of subconsciously, if we really thought about it, we could sit down and pick apart like, oh, these are all the things that we know show up in Westerns. It would have been just as familiar to the people making Gundam. And I think this episode is pretty clear evidence that somebody on the Gundam team really, really wanted to make a Western. And this was their opportunity to satisfy those long suppressed and frustrated dreams. <laughs> During our discussion with Sean about this episode, I mentioned that a couple of elements of the Gyan's design, namely the armor on its torso and the deep dish round shield that it carries, reminded me of some of the battle gear worn by ancient Greek soldiers. Both the body armor, called a linothorax, and the shield, which is popularly but incorrectly called a hoplon and should actually be called an aspis, both <laughs> represented the pinnacle of military science in their day and age although thanks to their extreme antiquity, it's hard to know exactly when that was. Yeah, hoplon is the term for all of the soldier's equipment, not just the shield. The more you know. <laughs> Let's start with the linothorax armor, because for reasons I'll explain in a second, it probably predated the aspis. Like I mentioned before, there are no surviving examples of the linothorax, so we have to base our understanding of what they were like based on references in ancient literature, the earliest of which comes from Homer's Iliad, as well as depictions in art, of which there are a very great many. I should also mention that we don't actually know what the Greeks called this particular style of armor, and Homer wasn't good enough to actually name the thing, he just describes it. So we call it a linothorax because thorax is the Greek term for body armor, and the lino bit is there because this armor was made from layers and layers of linen fabric glued together with animal fat. Huh. Stinky. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> 
And you'd think that cloth armor would not be very effective. I mean, if you've ever played a role-playing game, you know that cloth armor is the worst. That's what wizards wear, and they're just like sword magnets. But this is glue cloth. <laughs> so many layers. Exactly. Enough layers of just about anything actually makes for a pretty decent armor. The Chinese developed some shockingly strong paper armor just a few centuries later. And the linothorax was actually much better than just decent. Modern recreations of the armor by scholars have shown it to be lightweight, flexible, and strong enough to stop a sword or an arrow at close range. This was basically ancient Kevlar. They were also far cheaper and quicker to make than a contemporary bronze or iron cuirass would have been. And as a bonus, the use of linen and animal glue meant that the body heat of the wearer would eventually mold the armor to fit him perfectly. Ew. <laughs> linen was also abundantly available from a pretty early period. That bit about being lightweight was especially useful for the Greek armies who were marching around in the sunny Mediterranean. More than a few battles were decided by which side became exhausted first. And from ancient depictions in art, it looks like the armor was constructed with a combination of large pieces of linen that more or less approximate armor plates, as well as numerous linen scales overlapping each other in a lamellar fashion. The lamellar? Lamellar. Basically, armored plates overlapping each other. So like scales? Yes. Technically, scale armor is uh, scales on a like coat of cloth underneath. Whereas lamellar isn't attached to an underlying like Layer. garment. Okay. The armor plates on the chest, which kind of resemble those on the torso of the gyan, would be secured there with two more plates that wrap down over the shoulders and attach to the upper pectorals. And that seems to be what the gyan's separated upper chest region is referencing. It also had hanging flaps that protected the groin and thighs, called teriges, that resembled the gyan's armored skirting. The linothorax remained in use at least through to Alexander the Great's day in the 3rd century BCE, but probably significantly later. Thanks to the Iliad, we can date the introduction of the linothorax pretty reliably to sometime before the 6th century BCE, that being the latest that we think the Homeric poems might have been composed by whichever person or persons we now call Homer. But as for when they were actually first introduced, who knows? The equipment and style of fighting that is described in the Iliad is consciously antiquated, which is to say, Homer was writing about a period long in the past, and he was describing gear that would have felt plausibly ancient to a contemporary audience. The Homeric poems were actually quite nostalgic. They describe an era of heroic one-on-one -on -one combat between professional warrior aristocrats, but that was an era that was already over or very rapidly coming to its end when the Homeric poems were composed. And the thing that brought about the end of that era was the Aspis shield. Or rather, a lot of Aspis shields lined up next to each other, plus spears. Because the Aspis was part and parcel with the hoplite and that most iconic Greek military innovation, the phalanx. If you're not familiar, a phalanx is a dense formation of heavy infantry called hoplites, each man carrying a huge shield, that being the Aspis, and a long spear. Armor, which again would have been mostly the linothorax, was common but not universal. The shield really was the main method of defense. When the shields were aligned together, they formed an unbroken wall, bristling with spears. The spears are long enough that anyone attacking the formation must face not just the front rank, but four or more ranks of spears behind them before they even get close to the wall of shields. Over time, the ranks would get deeper and the spears longer, so you might be facing formations of hoplites 32 or even 50 ranks deep. 
Hoplites also carried a one-handed straight sword called a Xiphos, which they would use if disarmed or in the rare case when someone managed to get past the spears. The phalanx was, in its era, a steamroller. Disorganized, heroic-style warbands of elite professional warrior aristocrats got rolled over, again and again and again, by a bunch of farmers with long sticks, big shields, and unit cohesion. This was the classical equivalent of running a cavalry charge at a machine gun emplacement in World War I, and it was probably no less shocking to societies of the era. There is a pretty solid argument that democracy exists because of phalanxes. I think you have gotten somewhat off topic, but it's very interesting. <laughs> I think that's I think that's the subtitle for our podcast. <laughs> somewhat off topic. But very interesting. <laughs> it's worth taking a moment to talk about how the phalanx worked, because I think it's easy to lose some of the dread and awe that they must have inspired when we talk about them as ancient history. But the Gyan fights by itself. I know, and that's why it lost. There was a rhythm to the way a phalanx fought. First... The hoplites all together sing. A hundred, five hundred, fifteen hundred voices singing battle hymns together as they march toward you. The hymns get faster, and so do they, feet stamping together, faster and faster, a solid wave, a flat wall of shields. In the instant before impact, the songs change into a ululating crescendo as they shriek their city's battle call in tribute to the goddess of the war cry. Spears come at you from every direction. Some of the hoplites thrust from overhead down, others jab toward your thighs, your calves. If you turn to defend against one spear, another will slip through a gap to catch you. Even when a spear breaks or is lost, another warrior further back in the formation merely passes his weapon forward to replace the loss. And if the spears all break before you do, the hoplites push. The weight of four ranks, of sixteen, of thirty-two, or fifty comes crashing into you. Those behind you on your side push back, all of you knowing that if the line breaks anywhere, the formation will shatter and it will be every man for himself. When two phalanxes meet, it's strength, stamina, and courage that decides the winner. And it was the Aspis that made all of this possible thanks to two innovations. To make a phalanx work more than anything else, you need to be able to keep the shield wall together. That partly requires courage, and so there are endless poems from this era exhorting young men never to break ranks no matter what happens. But perhaps the bigger requirement is that you need the physical strength and stamina to hold your shield up in the same place without a break and fight for however long the battle is going to last. And since winning often came down to exhausting your opponent before you yourself got exhausted, that could be a long, long time. And the Aspis was not light. A meter in diameter, covering its wielder from chin to knee, it weighed something like 33 pounds, or 15 kilograms, or 2.3 stone. But paradoxically, the Aspis's extreme size was part of what made sustained use possible. It was big enough and curved enough that you could rest the top of the shield on your own shoulder while you were using it in battle. But the other great innovation was the Argive Grip, named for the city of Argos where it was supposedly first developed. Prior to this, when you held a shield, you held it with your hand, roughly in the center of the shield. The Argive grip moved the handhold out to the edge of the shield and added a forearm attachment in the middle. This allowed for easier carrying and maneuverability of the shield, and you may recognize it as the way basically all large shields have been designed ever since, including the shields in Gundam. A side note about the Aspis. You may be familiar with the phrase, sometimes attributed to Spartan mothers sending their boy children off to war for the first time, come back with your shield, or on it. 
whether that was ever really said, and it wasn't, it gets a bit of... <laughs> you sound awfully sure about that. Well, it was written by Plutarch three centuries after it supposedly happened in a book that he said wasn't literal. Oh, well, there you have it then. Yeah, it, it never happened. <laughs> but it does get at a bit of real truth about phalanx fighting. Because if a phalanx breaks, well, then it's fleeing time. And however valuable your 33-pound, 15-kilogram, or 2.3-stone shield might be in the line of battle, it is an impediment you do not need during fleeing time. A hoplite who came back without his shield was not necessarily a coward or a bad fighter. He was nothing more or less than the survivor of a lost battle. So what that mythic Spartan mother was really saying was, if you lose, you're out of the family. <laughs> And now, a brief note on the history of dueling in Texas. The Republic of Texas was a short-lived sovereign nation-state existing in North America from 1836 to 1846. Its 10-year lifespan was marked by instability, war, political infighting, an attempt to annex California, and a frenzy for dueling. This was not unique to Texas at all. Dueling was in vogue throughout the southern United States and territories from the 17th century until the 1860s. There were repeated attempts to ban the practice in Texas, but nonetheless, to quote an article from the Texas State Historical Association, a strikingly high percentage of army officers and national officials were either killed or received debilitating wounds in duels. The list of grounds for these duels includes money, honor, reputation, horses, and of all things, which of two officers was responsible for choosing the cuts of beef to be served to their company? <laughs> a guy got killed over that. That's a really... well... I'm sure they obviously felt like it was very important and very significant to their social standing <laughs> to know which of them that was. In 1840, two war heroes would become famous at the Battle of San Jacinto, the battle that won Texian independence from Mexico. Both killed each other in a duel over what was, even at the time, recorded as, quote, some unimportant matter. They fired simultaneously. One guy got hit in the heart and the other in the brain. Wow. Uh, Sam Houston, who was first president of the Republic of Texas, was challenged to at least six duels, all of which he refused. Among those who challenged him was Mirabeau Lamar, the second president of the Republic of Texas. 1800s politics was wild. Dueling was part of the culture of honor that prevailed throughout the southern United States. And in a system that emphasizes the importance of a person's standing and regard in the eyes of society over their own internal sense of self-worth, it's natural that visible, ritualized violence would evolve as the habitual method for dealing with perceived slights. There is, however, an interesting and pretty compelling economic explanation for why people would eagerly put their lives on the line in order to preserve their honor. Because the economy in the South was relatively underdeveloped. Most wealthy Southerners had all of their assets tied up in cattle, horses, land, crops, and of course, slaves. What they did not have was cash, so they needed credit, and their lenders needed assurances that they would be paid back. That was what honor was for. An honorable person could be trusted to pay their debts. You'd lose your honor if you didn't. And if you were visibly willing to die for the sake of your honor, then you were probably willing to repay your debts for the sake of your honor. But dueling madness came to its end with the American Civil War in the 1860s. Having survived a war that killed or wounded 3% of the country's entire population, the Southerners were no longer quite so enthusiastic about killing each other over unimportant matters. That said, dueling cultures did continue on in a variety of other countries long afterwards. In fact, 
Uruguay passed a law in 1920 that explicitly permitted dueling. <laughs> and there was a duel between two Uruguayan politicians in 1971. Uruguay didn't actually outlaw the practice until 1992. And since then, there have been repeated calls to reinstate it, because recourse to the courts is simply not enough to restore a person's honor in the face of defamation by some miscreant. Wow. I guess what I'm saying is, Texas was pretty into dueling, but they really should have called that colony Uruguay. We bid adieu to McVeigh in this episode. He remains a puzzling villain, a man of masks and gambits. It is hard to know what to think of him, his motivations, his actions. Why did he stay behind when the rest of his fleet returned to Granada? Why did he risk everything to take out the Gundam? What secrets did those minds on Earth really contain? I suspect we'll never know the answer to any of these questions. We do know this about Macvey. He was loyal to Caecilia, and he loved that song Dynasty Vaz. So we acknowledge his passing now with a section from a poem by the Song Dynasty's most famous poet, Su Shur, about the past, the passage of time, and the brevity of human life in the face of eternity. Su Zi Chiao Ran, Zheng Jin Wei Zuo. 而问客曰何谓其然也客曰月明星稀乌雀南飞此非曹孟德之师乎希望下口东望武昌山川相聊玉乎苍苍此非孟德之困于周郎者乎方其破荆州下江陵顺流而东也竹庐千里荆棘
reciting that poem for us is our dear friend. Hello, um, dear audience. My name is Wen. <laughs> Um, I am Tom and Nina's friend. We met each other in actually karate club. I'm actually doing my work in education. I had um, came to the U.S. from Beijing. That's where I was born and raised. And that actually one of my favorite points. And it was an honor for <laughs> able to doing this. When mentioned to us that this poem that Tom picked out is actually one that a lot of high school students have to memorize or <laughs> recite in school, right. <laughs> exactly. So that's exact、um, ode is something that I recited or memorized as part of、um, my homework in <laughs> during my high school year because that one was very meaningful and tells a lot about like the things that you need to know about life. And he shares something he interpreted about this world. And、through his own perspective, as a great、um, poet, politician,、um, and a great human being in general. Oh, and actually, one thing really fun about him, his、um, I think Su Shi Hao Dongpo. So he had a Hao, and there is a famous Chinese dish called Dongpo Rou. People like have this myth that he invented it. <laughs> actually, it's not, but like he actually had、um, this dish, which is really, really tasty, really famous.、Um, pork meat with mushrooms and something else. That's funny. <laughs> his whole family are very famous. His younger brother, his father, and even his younger sister, and they are teasing each other a lot as well <laughs> by using poems. So <laughs> classy, very. If any of you speak Chinese, Wen also has a vlog. We will put a link in our show notes. <laughs> Thank you.、Um, it's just started as about like、um, my experience about New York since I am not born and raised here. Um, is from my perspective about like New York and when I travel. All right. Well, thank you very much, Wen. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for having me doing this. It's an honor. Next time on episode one point thirty one, goodbye forever. For Mirai, it's more than a feeling—a new, new type. Sandstorm by Darude, the remix. Asleep at the wheel. Dropping eaves. Flashback when Degwin had hair. Nobody cared who Shar was until he put on the mask. An explosion, dummy. The fate of the Vaz. And how many times can we say new type in one episode? Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things: subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSP Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com/patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at GundamPodcast, on Instagram at GundamPodcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com/GundamPodcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast@gmail.com, or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, "Zion would have won the war if only they had mass-produced the Big Zam." On any busy street corner, we'll totally hear you. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes to us from patron Angus S. I'm not sure that's wrong. <laughs> the big Zam is very powerful. 
I think it's easy for us to forget, since we're so focused in on Amuro all the time, that he's just one person. He can't win the war by himself. <laughs> just because he could defeat the Big Zom doesn't mean... I mean, before he defeats the Big Zom, even, we see him... We see the Big Zom take out six ships, big, whole ships by itself. Yeah. But what if the Federation mass-produced Amuro? I think they're working on that <laughs> sneakily behind the scenes. But can you imagine a phalanx of big zams marching towards you, singing? Dozel seems like a singer. He would sing war, oh, yeah. war songs. He absolutely would. Can you imagine Dozel at karaoke? <laughs> I'd rather not, thanks. Too scary. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. And for my benefit, could you say the name of the poet, just oh. so I can like try to pronounce correctly? Su Shi. I'm gonna get that wrong. <laughs> I'm about to do my best. Su Shi. Su Shi. 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 Sirens, the remix. (laughs) Sirens, they're going to love you up and turn you into a horny toad. (laughs) Here goes the thing with Sean that I still need to finish. The equipment and fighting style that gets described in the Iliad is consciously antiquated. (laughs) Antiquated. (laughs) I like this new word. That's not a sentence that makes sense. Well, I realized as I was reading it. <laughs> also, I'm pretty sure thinking about it now, the Texans would say San Jacinto. Ja, Jacinto. Um, Let the record state that we had an extensive discussion about how to pronounce San Jacinto. Don't at me about this. I know Americans don't use the Spanish <laughs> pronunciation. I don't care. Wow, this is fancy. Why is it the gyan and not the nyan? <laughs> not only defenses, but he's cutting <laughs> try that again. I love the moment in the intro where Degwin, even though he has stepped down, decides to take a dig at his son Garen. It's like, ah, oh, well, you should have expected Dozel to lose. Yeah. You big dumb idiot. Oh god, he's just like lounging on the throne. Well, so and so hard. And Giran just being like, the, the, the narrator, Giran suppressed his anger. Damn it, Dad. <laughs> I bet Giran has so much suppressed anger. <laughs> oh, and they've, de- they've decided to fall back to the final defense line of a bow and to. I'm sorry, uh, say it again. A bow and there to destroy the forces of the Federation. Which, if you have been listening to the podcast for a long time, you'll know is exactly what Imperial Japan tried to do using Okinawa. So I def- when that base showed up, I definitely thought it was like, okay, there's somebody's ashes in that <laughs> He just loves that base, that vase, so much. Here's the thing, it's the ashes of what used to be his cat. It all comes together.